please bow with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, we need You this morning. We need You to speak through Your Word that Your people might hear and be changed, that Your people might hear and grow in their love for You, that they might grow in their love for holiness and righteousness, that they might grow in their hatred of sin. Lord, we need You to work powerfully among us this morning, for without You, we can do nothing. We pray that You'd bless the Word, bless our ears to hear what You would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. As you can see, the inscription is called The Steadfast Love of the Lord. We don't really know much about the occasion for this psalm. And really, I don't think it matters all that much. But the psalm begins with a command to worship, a command to rejoice, and then gives reasons for obedience to that command. We have that word for steadfast love, chesed. We've talked about that word before. And we see this word in three verses in the psalm. We see it in verse 5. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. We see it in verse 18. The eye of the Lord is on those who hope in His steadfast love. And we see it in verse 22. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in You. This psalm is a psalm about who God is. What He's like. And what the proper response is to knowing who He is and what He's like. I was fascinated listening to different sermons this week. One minister with this psalm, he made reference to Acts 17 and the contrast there when Paul speaks to those who have an altar to an unknown God. And how can one worship an unknown God? Now the context seems to be that they worshipped all kinds of gods, they had altars to all kinds of gods, and this one just served as an etc. <laughs> In case we missed anybody, here's your altar. We want to cover all of our bases. But that's not worship. That's an insurance plan. (laughs) We cannot worship what we do not know. And Jesus says this very thing in John 4 when He speaks to the woman at the well. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Paul is not satisfied with an altar to an unknown God. Jesus is not satisfied with worshiping what you do not know. And so as we read this psalm, I invite you to stand as we will read through this psalm. And it was good that we sang it to continue to get it in your mind, but have that that in the front of your mind, that this psalm is showing us who the Lord is that we're worshiping, who we're singing to this morning. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of His mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. 
He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where He sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, and on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast, O Lord, steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Please be seated. So you see, we begin this psalm with the command. It is a command. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Thinking about this word fit, fitting. Appropriate. There's other uses of this word, and it, it's interesting just to contemplate them. Proverbs 19.10 says, It is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Proverbs 26.1 says, Like a snow in summer or rain in harvest. So honor is not fitting for a fool. These things are out of place. There should be no snow in summer or Preferably after February, but not the case, unfortunately. Caleb read from Psalm 147 this morning. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is, a pleasant, it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. It is appropriate. It's what should be, the way things ought to be. Just as it's not the way things should be, something's wrong when a fool is prospering in his foolishness. So in the opposite... God's people, it's fitting for us to praise Him. There could be nothing more appropriate than for God's people to praise Him. When you look at verses 2 through 3, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings, sing to Him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. There are three basic attributes to this worship that we get here. First is that there's, like a, there's a freshness, so to speak. Sing to the Lord a new song. There's skilled. They're called to play skillfully. And there's zeal with loud shouts. Why would God's people sing a new song? Well, all songs are new at some point, so you can't avoid it. But when you look at Exodus 15, they had a new experience of God's salvation. And this spurred on a new song. That did not exist before. When David's delivered from his enemies, he has a new experience of God's work in his life and he sings a new song. In our lives, we have new experiences of God's grace to us. We all experience our own salvation individually. And this may cause some of us to even write a new song of praise. And this is good. And this is appropriate. 
thinking of Martin Luther and his experience of being rescued from the bondage of Roman Catholicism and being just given this gospel of grace and how that spurs him to write many songs we still sing today. John Newton is inspired to write Amazing Grace after recognizing his sinful participation in the transatlantic slave trade. And after he realizes how great God's grace is, that it can save a wretch like me, we get a new song. And it's good. But we're commanded to worship with skill and with zeal. And the question might be, why? It's... I think of Teddy a few weeks ago. Well, a few months ago now. Favorite question was why. When even Gabriel this morning was asking me, why? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Following me around. Why, why, why? Well, why are we to do these things? Why do we sing a new song with skill and zeal? The psalm answers. The whole rest of the psalm is an answer to that question. Why? And you get that explicitly in verse 4. The word for. It's an explanation, a reason given for what precedes. So, here's the outline for the sermon. In verses 1 through 3, you get the command. This is the command to worship. Why? Verses 4 to 5, the Lord is good. The first reason why we sing. In verses 6 through 9, the Lord is sovereign over creation. Another reason we worship Him. In verses 10 through 17, we see the Lord is sovereign over history. And it is another reason to worship Him. In verses 18 through 19, the Lord is sovereign over His people. And another reason to worship the Lord. And then you come to the end, verses 20 through 22, you get the fitting praise of God's people in response to these reasons. The fitting praise of God's people. So, why are we commanded to sing? Why should we sing? The Lord is good. Verses 4 through 5. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. There are four descriptors for the Lord here, which we're summarizing. The word of the Lord is good. The words of the Lord are good. The works of the Lord are good. The affections of the Lord are good. And the earth is full of the Lord's goodness. Praise is fitting because the words of the Lord are good. And it, the word upright, we saw it in verse 1. There's a, a, an idea of a standard that's being met. It meets that standard. It's upright. And it's the same word we find in verse 1. If you have an ESV or a more literal translation, they'll typically use the same English words to connote the same Hebrew words when they can. But what is interesting about the same word being used here is that it comes out of sounding something like this. Praise befits the upright because the Lord is upright. Praise is natural for us because we are of the same kind now as God. Not in a we become little gods kind of sense. But in the sense that we're brought into the family of God. We're made new. We're His children. There's a family resemblance now. And because of that family resemblance we have now, it is fitting that we worship the one to whom praise is fitting to give. 
But perhaps more importantly, we are reminded that the word of the Lord itself is good. We have no shortage of critics who would question that, especially in reference to the Bible, but we must remember how valuable his word is. And there's no better place to go in the Old Testament than Psalm 119 and just reflect on what Psalm 119 says about the Lord's words. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? There's purity in the word of God. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's protection from sin in the word of God. Verse 25 says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. The the words of God are life-giving. In verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Another wonderful promise about the life given in God's word. Verse 28 says, my soul melts for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. There is strength in the word of God. Verses 46 and 47, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. For God's people, there is delight in the word of God. There is freedom from shame in the word of God. In verse 63, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. There is fellowship and companionship, even in the word of God. And so we see the words of God, the very word of God is good. And there's no wonder that the psalmist also says in Psalm 119, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. And in 71 and 72, he says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This and much more was written by a man who did not even have half the benefit of seeing what we have when we think of the Word of God. As we know in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, the Word Himself, in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. The full disclosure of who God is is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. At bottom, when we affirmed the word of the Lord is upright, we are saying that whatever the Lord says, how, whatever communication comes from the Lord is good. We see that the Lord's works are good. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. In Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And the text goes on to give you no option but to understand that those who are called according to His purpose are all believers. All people who have ever been bought by the blood of Jesus. Which means if you belong to Jesus in this room today, the works of the Lord are for your good. In all contexts. As hard as that may be to wrestle with, Because we have some dark providences that we deal with in this life. But the word of God speaks a word of hope. That whatever is happening to you, God is working in it for your good. God's people cling to the truth that whatever God does is good, even if we do not always understand how or why he does what he does. And particularly striking to me is when we consider he loves justice in verse 5 of Psalm 33. He loves righteousness and justice 
that the affections of the Lord are good. More than his words are good, more than his works are good, his fundamental heart orientation is good. We see this in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot, cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It is impossible for God to be stained with evil internally. His affections are good. We must remember, no matter how long the Lord's justice tarries, that He is a perfectly just God. Isaiah 61, verse 8 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Psalm 37, verses 27 through 29, Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And one of the thoughts that occurred to me this week, we think of Luke 12, 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we always apply this to ourselves, right? Because the text applies it to us. Like, evaluate yourself. There your heart will be also. This is a truism. This is something that's like true of all creatures, and I think including God. That where His treasure is, there His heart is also. His affections, His love. Well, what do we see about where the Lord's treasure is? Exodus 19, verses 5-6. through Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That God's people are the Lord's treasure. And because of that, that is how his heart is fundamentally oriented. Wonderfully, we see this expounded upon in 1 Peter. It's no longer if you obey my commandments, but through Christ in 1 Peter 2. um, You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we're going to see this theme throughout the psalm. It's not just we're exalting in the goodness of God in a vacuum. But we're exalting in the goodness of God because He loves His people. And He's helping His people. The only proper response is to sing. We see the earth is full of the Lord's goodness, and we might immediately bristle <laughs> at that. The world does not appear many times to be full of the Lord's goodness. We see sin all around us and darkness. Where do we see the chesed of God, the steadfast love of the Lord? And I think the psalm is going to go on to explain this. The rest of the psalm is going to show you how the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So, let's go on. Verse 6. We saw that we sing a new song in zealous worship to Him because He's good. And now we're coming to understand we sing a zealous song to Him because He is sovereign over creation. We're looking in verses uh, 6, starting in verse 6. 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Now, in one sense, if the word of the Lord is good, and by the word of the Lord, the heavens and the earth were made, it follows that at least they were created good, because his good word spoke it into existence. But, I think there is a more stunning and humbling display of the sovereign power of God in that we just contemplate the effortlessness, the raw power, that as much as I'm speaking to you now and you hear me, God in that same act causes matter to pop into existence and bend to his will. He creates the heavens and the earth. He forms the rocks and the seas. He creates life. Creates you and me. But it's interesting that the psalmist, with all the examples of things he could point at, all the things that God has made, he talks about the sea and the waters being gathered as a heap. And as Pastor Caleb referenced this morning, I think for a Jew read, hearing this, little alarm bells would be going off and take his mind to Exodus 15. We looked at Exodus 15, verse 8, where it says, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood in a heap, and the deeps congelled in the heart of the sea. But again, just as we talked about, we're not necessarily celebrating God's goodness in a vacuum. We're also not celebrating God's sovereignty over creation in a vacuum. When you look at Exodus 15.8, it's not just uh, isolated from all contexts. We're celebrating God's power over nature. It's in response to God using His power for the salvation of His people. Exodus 15, verses 4-10, through 10, just to remind you. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send them out in your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congelled in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So again, the singing, the response of God's people is celebration what God does for them. God saved His people with His sovereignty, His sovereign power over creation. There's another wonderful example of this language used in a very similar way in Joshua 3. You see Joshua 3, verses 13 through 16. This is when the Jews are coming back or coming to the promised land and waters are split again. But this time it's the Jordan River. And now the people can pass through. You see in verses 13 through 16. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So again, you see the word heap used to describe the waters. And again, it's used describing a way in which God is using His power for the benefit of His people, saving His people, providing for His people, fulfilling His promises to His people. When we get to verses 8 and 9, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. 
What else can one do when faced with the Lord who has sovereign power over all things? But to fear. Fear is a right response. This is exactly where Job found himself when he began to accuse and question God. He was shown a glimpse of the wonders of the universe that God had made. And he began to fear of God and stood in awe of Him. After being shown things we cannot imagine, we read in Job 40, The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of a small count. Why shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Fear and awe are extremely appropriate responses to a revelation of God. While nature dutifully obeys the Lord's every command, unfortunately man does not. We do not dutifully obey His every command. And we see this talked about in the following section, in verses 10 through 17. We rejoice not only because God is good, not only because the Lord is sovereign over creation, but also the Lord is sovereign over the nations, over history. So we come to verses 10 through 17. When we look at verses 10 through 12, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen has His heritage. There's a lot of things that have been kind of wild in the last several years. Put it lightly. And there's a lot of fear about particularly powerful men that are untouchable and can do things however they want, without consequence. We may consider our own case, and we, we lament our own powerlessness to affect things that clearly seem unjust to us. I think of, I think of the, all of the, all the circumstances, they keep us awake at night, keep us glued to the news, keep us getting mad about things we can't control. When we consider our own power, not only are we powerless on the stage of world events, in reality, we're kind of powerless even in our own neighborhoods. Like, <laughs> we have such little power to affect what's going on around us. The language here is striking in that I think a lot of it's similar to what we see in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? They seek to unyoke themselves from the Lord and His anointed. Note what verses 10 and 11 are saying. The counsel of the nations, the world, the wicked people that pull the levers of power in this life Their counsel is brought to nothing and their plans are frustrated. We are powerless. I can do nothing about the most wealthy people in the world making decisions that affect millions of people's lives, largely based on their own profit. I can't do anything about that. But the Lord sees. And their plans will be frustrated. Justice will be brought. The Lord loves justice. 
No, long, no matter how long his justice tarries, it will come. See the strong contrast in verse 11. The plans of the nations, the plans of the people are frustrated, but the Lord's counsel endures forever. The most powerful men on earth can do nothing to frustrate the Lord's plan for his people. Nothing can be done to us that is outside of the will of God. Nothing can be done to us that is outside of what the Lord talks about in Romans 8.28, that He works all things for the good of those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. Whatever man may do to me, God is working in that for His counsel, which cannot be thwarted. There are a few things to contemplate that are worthy of more singing than that. When you come to verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. And I don't know how to subtly say this. This is not a Memorial Day text. (laughs) This text is not about the United States of America. This text is not about any modern nation, including Israel. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. This was true of the Old Testament nation of Israel, but it is now true of the church, which means no matter what country you're from, if you serve Jesus Christ as your Lord, you are the blessed nation whose God is the Lord. You are the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We already read from Second Peter, or first, we already read from First Peter two, but we'll read it again because it's so helpful. First Peter two nine through ten, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is every believer. So every believer, we are all part of that blessed nation whose God is the Lord. And there's no secular nation, no, actually no nation since Israel was broken up by the Romans that can claim this. And I think that's a better song to sing about anyway. <laughs> Singing about our belonging to the Lord through Jesus Christ. Verses 13 through 17. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great might, his strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Now, as you may know, horses are talked a lot about throughout the Bible. And they're rarely in the context that we use horses today. There were other animals that were probably used for more work-related tasks than horses might be used today. And horses weren't necessarily used for pleasure riding a lot. Horses were implements of war. They were the best implements of war in the ancient world. D.A. Carson and I'm sure many others have likened them to modern tanks. That if you wanted a lot of firepower, you needed a lot of horses. 
You need a lot of people who knew how to use them. And I'm, I'm fascinated thinking about how we so much prize in our natural state mighty kings, mighty warriors, powerful implements of war. And I, there's an intersection of all these in my mind that comes Attila the Hun, world famous as a mighty man, feared by the world at his time, brought the Roman Empire to its knees in many ways, one of the most powerful empires to ever exist. Attila the Hun reveled in the fear he caused other people. He called his sword the Sword of Mars, which was the Roman god of war. Later in history, he's, he, people named him the Scourge of God. And such was his effect on the ancient world. Want to know how he died? It's weird. At least the, the story that we get. He didn't die in battle. Evidently, he died overnight because of a nosebleed and choked on his own blood and died. His might was of no use to him in that moment. The fear he inspired in others could not help him in that moment. It was no hope for salvation. This mighty, terrifying man that we know by name even today. And his might could not save him. His power could not deliver him. Empires do not rise and fall solely on the wisdom of their leaders, the fierceness of their soldiers, or the shrewdness of their economic policy. Every human being lives and moves and has their being because the Lord has ordained it and sustains it. And that sovereign power of the Lord is something to celebrate. We see that again in Exodus 15, that God orchestrated these events so that Pharaoh would be defeated. The enemy of God's people would be undone and God's people would be delivered. We read that for this very purpose, I raised you up, Pharaoh, that the power of God might be shown in you. And this is good. It's a wonderful reason to rejoice in the Lord. So we rejoice because the Lord's good. We rejoice in the sovereignty over creation. We rejoice in the sovereignty over history. And wonderfully, we rejoice in His sovereignty over His people in verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, and those who hope in his steadfast love. These are synonymous, by the way. Those who have a godly fear of the Lord aren't just terrified and flinching every time they look up at the sky waiting for a lightning bolt to strike them. But those who have a godly fear of the Lord are also the ones who hope in his steadfast love. Those who trust him. Those who see that he is good. What does it mean that the Lord has his eye on his people? Psalm 17.8 says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me, my shadow. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. This is an intense uh, gaze, an intense observation of the Lord to bless. The Lord looks upon us as a father watches his children, as a mother watches her children. There's careful attention. There's careful attention to make sure they're provided for, they have what they need. The Lord's eye on His people is that kind of 
a gaze. I think there's some analogy to Psalm 1, verses 3 through 6. He is like a tree, the blessed man, that meditates on God's law day and night. He is like a, a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the righteous, in the, stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, an intimate knowing, intimate knowledge. His eye is on the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist will think of the Lord's eye on them in the context of Exodus 15, where the Lord's eye was on His people to save them from their enemies. Or in the context of Joseph, who was preserved through all his trials to save the known world from a devastating famine, including his people. Or in the context of the superpower Assyria rolling into Judah, coming up on the gates of Jerusalem, to extinguish God's people. The Lord had His eye on His people and supernaturally delivered them from the wrath of the Assyrians. When the eye of a good and sovereign God is on you for your good, there is no better place you could possibly be. But there is a flip side to this. What about those who do not fear the Lord? The Lord's eye is on them too. And for those who do not know the Lord, everything we've talked about this morning is not a comfort, but a terror. When the Lord is good and you are not, you're in a terrifying place. Because when the Lord is good and you are not, then the good God should bring destruction on you. And further, this Lord is not just good, He's also sovereign over all things. The very elements bend to His will. He's utterly sovereign over all the nations, all the peoples. There's nowhere to hide from the piercing gaze of God if He is your adversary. So this is a good moment to pause. Just remind you, if there are any of you here today who do not love the Lord, who do not hope in His steadfast love, for whom the gaze of the Lord is not a delight or a comfort, but a terror. Today is the day of salvation. All who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord Jesus was given that you might be forgiven, and that as hard as it may be to imagine, even in our sinfulness, the Lord can gaze upon us in delight and in nothing but delight. And for God's people, this is our experience. As much as our feelings might protest against us at times, in the blood of Jesus, in the white robes that Jesus gives us, His gaze looks upon us and sees nothing but beauty, nothing but goodness, nothing but righteousness. And that's why when we read, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, we should not sweat as God's people when we hear that. We should relax. What a wonderful, what a wonderful thing. The good God who is Lord over all things is gazing upon me and is working all things for my good. This is how Paul can say in Romans 8, 
what, shall we, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the good God who is sovereign over every molecule in the universe is for you, what can possibly be against you? Nothing. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the implied answer is no. None of them. Forever under a hostile government to Christianity is hostile to the point of rounding us up and imprisoning us, attacking us, or worse. They, they can't separate me from the love of Christ. They may kill me, but they can't separate me from the love of Christ. We see in verse 19 that He, the Lord, may deliver their soul from death. The Lord is the one with sovereignty over our souls. There is no human government, no human power, no natural power that can either deliver our soul from death or deliver our souls to death if the Lord has delivered us from death. When we come to the end of our psalm in verse 20, we've considered, why do we sing? Why is it fitting for God's people to sing unto the Lord? He's good. He's sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over His people. And so we come to verses 20 and 22 and we see that fitting response from God's people. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. The word hope is interesting here. There's other uses of this word throughout the Old Testament. Even as we hope in you. And some of their locations are really interesting and instructive for us. We can turn to Lamentations. The book of Lamentations. After Jeremiah, before Ezekiel. You can guess, even if you don't remember what the book's about, the very title should give you an idea of what's in this book. But the context is that Jeremiah is basically looking over the ruins of Jerusalem as it has been conquered and destroyed by the Babylonians, and he weeps. He weeps over the destruction of his people, his city. And so we come, Lamentations 3 Verses nine, starting in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. And all the preceding stuff is a very graphic description of his grief, description of what is grieving him. Verse 21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What does he call to mind? What gives him hope in the, as he looks at the utter ruins 
of this civilization, this people that he loved. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So what do you get here? Even in the most dire, terrible circumstances of the human experience, we can be like Jeremiah and say, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Not that I'm promised a comfortable life. Not that I'm promised to have some personal liberty that's always going to be respected. Not that I'm promised a healthy family and a healthy body. But I am promised the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And again, as we've seen in Psalm 33, His eye is on those who hope in Him. Psalm 42, verse 5, also. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Another really wonderful uh, use of this word. And I am talking about the Hebrew word, at least in the ESV. It's all translating it as hope. But it is the same Hebrew word. Job 13. You may know where I'm going even just at the mention of this. Job 13.15. Just to remind yourselves of what Job has been through. Literally loses everything. Literally loses everything that can be lost. Property, family, personal health. He's left in a rubble of his estate with all of his family dead with sores that he can barely stand. And yes, we know he's a roller coaster of emotions who wouldn't be. He sins in his protest against God and that is addressed in this book. But he does faithfully say in verse, chapter 13, verse 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Even if God were just to take my life, take everything, yet I will hope in him. And you could hear somebody just kind of angrily, how can, any, how can you say that? How can anybody say something like that? How can a man say, even if God takes my very life after I've literally lost everything else, how, how can I praise a God like that? Well, again, remember, this is the fitting response, especially in Psalm 33. This is the fitting response to what we've discussed. If you don't know that God is good, if you don't know that He's sovereign over creation, if you don't know He's sovereign over history, if you don't know He's sovereign over His people, you can't say this. If you don't know His eye is on those who love Him, who hope in His steadfast love, you can't say this. But for the one who knows who God is, the one who knows who He worships, doesn't worship an unknown God, but worships the God who is revealed in Scripture, by God's grace it is possible to say this. We may not have the strength to say it now, but the Lord promises that in the time of trial He'll give us what we need. I know I'm weak. I don't know what I would say in the face of terrible persecution. 
That's why I don't hope in myself. I don't hope that I'm strong enough in the moment to give some wonderful Hollywood movie response that's like shaming everybody, you know. But I hope in Jesus. And I hope in his eye on me. That in that moment, he'll give me what I need. In Christ, we benefit fully from the fact that God is good, sovereign over creation, sovereign over history, and sovereign over his people. Hmm. For a God like that, may we all rejoice. May we all obey the command we get in verses 1 through 3. May we all sing to the Lord. May we all put our hope in him and nothing and no one else. May we live as if we truly believe that Christ is all and in all. Let's pray.